following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. All right, this morning we'll be looking in Numbers chapter 22. If you have a Bible and want to turn there, or we'll have it up here in a minute, and we can follow as we read. Uh, title of my message this morning is Donkey Theology. Uh, we'll start reading uh, in chapter 22, verse 1. Then the people of Israel set out and camped on the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Ammah, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are now dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand, and they came to Balaam and gave Balak's message. And they said to, and he said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. And God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men uh, with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent, me, uh, sent to me, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt, and it covers the face of the earth. Now come, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. And God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Go uh, to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the princes of Moab rose and went with Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Once again, Balak sent princes more in number and more honorable than these. And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak the son of Zippor, Let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will surely do you great honor, and whatever you say to me I will do. Come, curse this people for me. But Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. So you too, please stay here tonight, that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. We'll stop there. And we'll look uh, more, uh, but we'll stop there for now. in this passage, uh, uh, Balak, the king of Moab, has uh, sent to Balaam to come curse the Israelites. 
Uh, and he says uh, to, to Balaam uh, and b- believes that those who Balaam curses will be cursed and those who Balaam blesses will be blessed. Uh, and it really raises this whole topic of, of God's blessing, or in this case, his cursing. And how does it work? Uh, where does God's blessing come from? And what is the basis of it? What's interesting in this passage is that there are here a number of theologians. Uh, does anybody here think of themselves as a theologian? Come on, raise your hand. Don't be bashful. Here, here's the truth. Yeah, Imran's the only one. Imran's our resident theologian. Way to go, Imran. The fact is, every single one of us is a theologian. Right? We're not, we may not have majored in it. We may not have it in school. But everybody has an idea or ideas about who God is and how he works. In this case, we will see that all the characters in this story have theology. They are theologians. Even the donkey, as it turns out, uh, has a theology. right? And you, each one of us, has, has an idea, a theology about who God is and how he works. And um, uh, now not everybody is a good theologian, right? And not every theology, as we see, is true, and, and, and of course that's dangerous because uh, God is who he is and it's super important that we understand him correctly that we have the right idea about who he is and how he works uh, which is not always true um, so, so and at the, at the core of, of our theology of anybody's theology is this idea that God can bless or curse that God has power over our life to make things better for us or worse now, here's an easier question. How many of you want things to be better? Or how many of you are kind of hoping for the curse? Anybody? I'm hoping God curses me. No, obviously. We, the, the, the whole kind of goal of, of our theology is to know how we can walk with God and know this God who could bless us. So it's, it's a good question. And it's a question that gets wrestled with here from several different uh, theological viewpoints. And we're going to look at those. Um, how do they see... Uh, uh, God's blessing or cursing in, in this case. And, and of course, most importantly, we want to know how it really comes. How is it that God uh, could send us his blessing? How is it that we can know we walk in and live in God's blessing? So let's look at some of these theologians. Uh, and the first we're going to look at is the, the, the theology of Balak, who was the king of Moab, who, who has a very clear theology. And actually, some of his theology happens to be pretty good. Uh, even though he was uh, an enemy of Israel and wanted to call down curses on them. Actually, um, some parts of his theology are good. Of course, some parts we will see are not. Uh, But let's get a little bit of the setting. Uh, uh, It says that the Israelites are um, uh, 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 on the the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. If you've been with us through the book of Exodus and Numbers, you know that the Israelites have been wandering out around in the wilderness now for almost 40 years. And they are now really at the, at the front door to, to the promised land. Right? They are camped out in the plains of Moab uh, on the east side of the Jordan River. And the promised land is on the west side, just directly opposite them, Jericho. Uh, the first point of entry, the first thing that they come to when they finally enter. Um, so they're, they're on the verge of seeing, finally, seeing God's promise fulfilled. And in fact, in this passage, it makes a big deal and uses a lot of different uh, metaphors and language to talk about how they are a vast people. Uh, Balak, Balak calls them a horde. 
uh, they've covered the face of the earth, he says. And so already that was one of God's promises to Abraham, that, that his descendants would be like the dust of the earth. And, th- and they've already seen that part fulfilled. And so, um, so uh, Israel, are, they're heirs of the promise of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Genesis 28, uh, just to remind you of this promise, uh, God states his promise to Jacob in, in Genesis 28 this way. He says, And behold, the Lord stood above the ladder. This is the account where Jacob has the dream of the ladder uh, between earth and heaven. And, and, and God says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. You and your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Right, so uh, fast forward 400 and some years, and now the descendants of Jacob and the tribes of Jacob are, are camped here. But there's a question, right? God says he's going to keep his promise to, to, to uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But so far, this hasn't happened very well. Uh, they have multiplied. They are like the dust of the earth. But they're still outside the promised land. And if you've been tracking with this whole story... Uh, you might be thinking, as I do, well, if God's going to bless anybody, certainly it's not these people, right? Because they're, well, they're terrible, right? And just in the last chapter, last Sunday, we looked at even Moses, their leader, fails. And he falls and he, he dishonors God by striking the rock when the water came out, right? And so there's this big question, and this whole generation uh, has been cursed and, and they're waiting for the last of them to die off, right? And so the question is, is God really going to keep his promise for these people? And that's, that's really the, the, the context or the setting of this. Are they really a blessed people? Because they don't look or act like blessed people. Uh, and so along comes King uh, Moab, King Moab, um, Balak, and, and he represents um, a kind of theology that, like I said, it's got some good and some bad. So first the good. First thing is, that he understands that God makes a difference, right? He, he, he uh, makes an alliance with his neighbors, the Midianites, and they, they, they take an offering and they raise some funds and they're going to go find this guy named Balaam to come curse the Israelites. And he says, there's, there, there's so many of them, I know I can't beat them. There's, there, I'm way outnumbered. But he, but he knows that it's not just about numbers, it's not just about military strength or power, that in the end it comes down to which team God chooses, right? Who's, whose side is God on? And he's like, well, if I can pay God uh, enough money to, to switch sides and be on my side and curse Israel, then um, I have a shot at success and at victory. What's interesting is that um, this is a place where Israel themselves failed, right? Israel didn't really believe that God could make all the difference in the world. But here the king of Balak, this uh, enemy, actually gets it. Like if God's on your side, um, it doesn't matter the numbers. It doesn't matter how overwhelming your enemy looks. 
Right? Remember, 38 years previously, when they had scouted out the promised land, this is where they failed. Israel failed. Because they said, the people are too big, they're too many for us. We can't beat them. Even if God's on our side. Right? So, so interestingly, Balak represents some really good theology that would have been instructive for Israel. Like, you know, if God's on your side, numbers don't matter. Good truth. Um, but, but here's Balak's bad theology. Right? He, he, he says, let's send to, to Balaam and uh, let's pay him to come curse Israel for us. And the breakdown in his theology is this, is that he had this idea that God could be bought. Right? That, that God could be controlled and manipulated by men and that God, if we paid him enough or did the right ceremonies and rituals, if you get somebody who kind of understands how to manipulate the gods, that God could be controlled by, by, by Balak. And that God could be forced to bend to the will and, and desires of Balak. And uh, Balak is actually quite persistent in this. He, he sends uh, messengers the first time, and Balaam says, no, I can't do it. Uh, he sends them a second time, and he says, look, uh, I can, trust me, I can pay you what it takes. You just name your price. Right? I'll pay you whatever. And, and Balaam responds. He says, uh, you know, if you give me all the gold and silver in, in Balak's house, uh, it's not enough. Right? It's not gonna, this is not how it works. Right? We'll look at Balaam's theology in a minute. But Balak has this idea that he can pay off God. Uh, and in fact, when Balaam finally shows up, uh, he, he rebukes uh, Balaam and says, didn't I call to you? Why didn't you come? Am I not able to honor you? Am I not able to pay you your price? Right? So, so Balak has this theology that says, God must be kind of like us. And every person, every human being has their price. Right? Give them enough money, enough honor, enough what they're looking for. They'll do what you want. Uh, and he, he thought God must be like that. Uh, and that, that is bad theology. Um, and it's a mistake to think that the sovereign God of the universe could be controlled or manipulated or squeezed into our plans. And yet, I, I must say that as Christians, oftentimes this is exactly our theology. Now, of course, nobody would say this, right? We're too clever for that. And we would all say, no, God is sovereign and he rules and we, can, you know, we can't control God. But the reality is that the way we approach God... And the way that we think about God's blessing, we oftentimes practice a theology that's exactly like Balak's. How does that work? Well, it, it works like this. We get this idea that God's blessing is something that he gives to those he deems worthy. Right? Uh, certainly, God would not bless those who are not worthy. Right? Like, I know a lot of bad people in the world, and I don't want God to bless them. Right? And I don't think he should, because... That's not how it works. Blessing should go to people who deserve it. Now, honestly, think about how you think about things. Isn't that how we think about God and how it should work, right? Uh, and so in my own life and in our life, uh, we, we get this idea that if we do the right things, if we, if we do the things that God wants us to do, that he's kind of obligated to, to bless us. Like, I do my part, and then God will do his. Right? So, and, and I, I've lived this. I, I practice this theology. So I know, I know Christians can do this, because I've done it. And it looks something like this. You get up in the morning, 
and you set your alarm early because you're going you're gonna to have your quiet time. You're going to read the Bible. And so alarm goes off and you don't really want to get up, but you force yourself to get up because you're going to do the right thing. And you get your Bible out and you read and you pray and you check those things off the list. And you go out in the day expecting that it's going to be a really good day because I did what God required of me. Right? And maybe it turns out to be a really good day. And you think, hey, it worked. Right? So the next morning you're a little more motivated. Like, man, yesterday was a really good day. This, like, having my quiet time thing works. I'm doing it again. So you get it. Maybe even you get up earlier. Like, and you, like, read two whole chapters of the Bible. And you pray for, like, eight whole minutes instead of four. And you think, man, this is going to be like a really good day, right? And, and you go out from there, and everything just falls apart. You ever had that happen, right? It's like, it's not a good day at all. It's terrible from one end to the other. People are mad at you, and your car breaks down, and just everything goes badly. And how do you respond when that happens? Well, if you have Balak theology, how you will respond is the same way Balak does, You'll be angry that God didn't keep his side of the bargain. Look, I did my part. Why have you failed me? Why did you curse me when I did my part? And you see, uh, even though we may never state it, when, when when we start getting angry at God because we don't get the blessing we think we deserve, it's because we wrongly think that God is, is, a, is a vending machine that we control. And if I do my part, if I do what He calls me to, what He demands of me, then He is obligated to do His part. He's obligated to bless me. And if I don't feel blessed, I have a right to be angry at God because He has failed me. Well, that's terrible theology. Um, uh, and, and the beginning of the bad theology is this, and that is that we, we are never worthy. Right? We are never, ever worthy. I don't care if you read the Bible 24-7. I don't care if you give away all your money to the poor. Uh, if you make the, the, the greatest sacrifice of anybody ever to go to some foreign people group to share the gospel with them. Right? That does not make you worthy of anything. Um, Israel certainly has, has shown that, right? Even Moses has demonstrated he's not worthy. He is not worthy of the blessing. He is not worthy of the promised land. Right? There is no one who is worthy. Uh, this, is, this is Balak theology. It's also elder brother theology. If you're familiar with the parable of the prodigal son. Right? The elder brother said, look, I have done all these things for you. And yet you haven't even given me a goat. You haven't blessed me, Dad. Uh, and yet you do this for my brother who clearly is unworthy. Right? I'm the good guy here. I'm the one who's deserving. And, and you see, he misunderstood. He had bad theology. And he misunderstood the basis or the way in which God blesses people. Uh, so let's uh, look at now the theology of Balaam. Now Balaam uh, has, has a little bit better theology and is certainly has a much richer and, and more sophisticated view of God. Uh, who, who is Balaam? He's not an Israelite. Uh, and in fact, uh, he was uh, famous as uh, some, some sort of a sorcerer or seer, someone who could see the future, who could somehow connect with God or gods and could figure out what they wanted and could, 
to tell people kind of the will or the plans of the gods, what, what the future held in store for them. And he, he was quite famous. And it says here that, that, that they sent to him at the river. Well, the river they're talking about here is the river Euphrates. Uh, if you remember, this is where uh, Abraham originally came from in Lot, way back in Genesis. <clears throat> Same area. And this region was about 400 miles away. So imagine, I mean, this is in a day when, you know, people didn't advertise on TV. I don't know how it worked. I don't know how his reputation became known. But his reputation was pretty extensive that, that a, a nation 400 miles away uh, would know uh, who he was and what he could do. Uh, in fact, so, so, so profound was his reputation that... Um, Several hundred years later, people were still talking about Balaam. And we know that because they found uh, in, in, in Canaan, in, in Israel, um, uh, what's called the Deir Allah inscriptions uh, at a temple, not a, an Israelite temple, non-Israelite, but they found inscriptions on a plaster wall that described uh, Balaam, this Balaam, and his activities. Uh, 700 years before Christ, which would have been about 500 years after this event. So imagine a guy who 500 years later, 500 years later, people are still talking about him, right? So, and what his power was, what his ability was, uh, was to, to see what the gods were doing. And what else is interesting about Balaam is even though he lived uh, on the Euphrates, uh, had no contact with the Israelites, he calls God Yahweh, Right? If you don't believe me, you can look in your Bible. It doesn't actually say it here because most translations uh, don't use the word Yahweh. They print the word Lord, but in all caps. So um, in chapter 23, uh, uh, Balaam says when the people come uh, asking, uh, he says uh, in verse 8, Lodge here tonight and I will bring back to you uh, a word back to you as Yahweh speaks to me. Later on in verse 12, he says, um, uh, I'm sorry, verse, verse 14, 18, uh, uh, I could not go beyond uh, the command of the Lord my God, Yahweh my God. Right? So who is this guy that he knows Yahweh? Well, we don't actually know how he knows Yahweh. Yahweh was a very special name of God uh, given uniquely to the people of Israel. Right? Uh, but, and yet uh, Balaam calls him that. Uh, we also see that Balaam was a guy who seems pretty serious about obeying God's commands. He says, I can't do, I, I, I cannot go beyond the command of, of Yahweh my God to do less or more. Right? He, he's serious about sticking to the word and to God's word. Right? So um, whoever this guy is, and, and however he came to be this way, he knows something of Yahweh. He knows something of the true and living God. And he knows something about how he works. And uh, Balaam understands that God can't be bought. He's clear on that, right? He says, look, I, you can give me all the money. You can give me all the, all the gold and silver you have. But God doesn't work that way, right? So, so in this, Balaam has, has much better theology. He understands that God is sovereign. Sovereign is a word that we use often that we probably don't define very well. But sovereignty ultimately means that God is an independent free agent who cannot be and will not be controlled by anybody else. But there's no other gods or angels or powers 
and certainly not human beings, who tell God what to do. He's sovereign. He, he's the one who, who commands. He is the one who's in charge. That's what sovereignty means. And, and, and he's never constrained. He's never compelled. He's never obligated to anybody. Certainly not to human beings who are sinful and fallen. Um, and so, so he knows and understands that God's free to act as he will. So it's interesting in chapter 22, we haven't read this yet, but um, uh, he says in verse 3, uh, he finally shows up and they, they offer these sacrifices. And, and, and Balaam says to Balak, Stand beside your burnt offering and I will go. Perhaps the Lord uh, will, uh, will come to meet me. And whatever he shows me, I will tell you. Right? He has no pretense. He has no idea that he's just going to, you know, demand and God's going to speak. He says, well, you know, I can go. We can do the right things to, to pave the way. But God is a free, sovereign Lord. And if he chooses to reveal himself to us, great. I'll tell you what he says. But he may not. Right? He may not. He may be silent. And so uh, it's up to God. And he's also very clear that, that he will not bless or do anything that God doesn't direct. He says, uh, I, I can't curse who God blesses. Right? God is sovereign to do that. Um, so, so in that, uh, he has uh, good theology. Right? He understands that God is sovereign and his blessing is something God does of his own will, his own sovereign choice. And we'll see that in a minute. Um, uh, uh, but 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 he also has some bad theology, right? And and the bad point of theology for Balaam is that he's he he's not sure that God really knows what he wants, right? He um, he keeps going back to God with the hope that even though God can't be forced, that God might on his own change his mind. And that's kind of uh, Balaam's downfall. Uh, he has this idea that. Um, well, the first time God said no. So when the people come back and say a second time, look, come with us. He, he doesn't say, God already said no, it's a done deal. He says, well, wait here. I can't go against what God says, but let's see if God changed his mind. Right? That's what he does. And, and to, to, to give Balaam um, some, some slack here, uh, the fact is, in this story, God does change his mind. Right? First, God says, don't go. And then, second time, God says, okay, go. And then, as we'll see in a moment, he goes, and God gets angry at him because he went, right? It seems like God does kind of change his mind a lot. And it seems, in fact, that God is somewhat fickle, and that God doesn't know what he wants. But, of course, we know that's not true, and, in fact, God will address this later. We, next Sunday, we'll see how God addresses his unchangeableness. Um, but from a human perspective, it can feel a lot like God changes his mind. Have you ever felt that way? Like God, one day he's kind of one way and one day he's another, right? It can feel that way. And the reason is, is not because God changes or even that he changes his mind, but the truth is God does respond to changing, ever-changing human beings. Right? God responds. God is not static. He's in relationship with us. And God does change... Uh, in response to us. So, for example, with Balaam, God says, don't go, because he wanted to make it clear that the people of Israel were blessed. Right? 
And, and, and you're not going to curse them because they are a blessed people. Uh, but the second time he says, okay, go because I'm going to use you for a purpose. Uh, and, and as we see later, uh, God pours out blessings over Israel through Balaam. But as he goes, uh, something apparently happens in Balaam's heart. And it doesn't, Scripture doesn't say, we don't know what happens, but we could guess. Balaam's riding along, and it's about a three-week journey, right? This is not a short trip. And as he's riding along, he's thinking about maybe the reward, gold and silver and honor. I mean, he's famous already, but like if he can pull this job off, like he's going to the top of the charts. Like people remember not in 500 years, but maybe in 5,000 years, right? And he starts thinking, hmm, there, there must be some way that I can arrange things to get God to do this. And God responds to his, it says, God says he has a perverse heart, right? God changes and responds to the place where Balaam is, right? God does not change his purpose or his plan, but he does respond to us in ways that, that appear to be a change. Um, so, so here's the question, though. So Balaam has some good theology, has some bad theology. He certainly knows God. He certainly seems committed to doing the right thing and to being a faithful uh, representative of God uh, to speak God's word accurately. So the question is, is Balaam a good guy or a bad guy? And if you read 30 uh, commentaries, but I didn't read 30, I only read 5 or 6, they all have opinions about this, right? And there's kind of a tug of war. Uh, Balaam the good guy, Balaam the bad guy, Balaam the good guy, Balaam the... So let's take a vote. How many... <laughs> um, what is with this Balaam, right? Is he a good guy or is he a bad guy? He clearly, uh, we will see in a moment, speaks the word of God. So uh, certainly somebody who speaks God's word. In fact, we'll see next week that the Holy Spirit fills him, comes upon him. Certainly he must be a, a holy man. He must be somebody who truly knows the living God and walks with him, right? Or not. We'll see in a moment that maybe he's not everything he's cracked up to be. In fact, in chapter 25, we find that Balaam is actually responsible for leading Israel into idolatry. Now, by my definition, that would not make him a good man. It would not make him holy. Right? It would make him an enemy of God. So which is he? Well, to, to, to know the answer to that, we have to move on to the third theologian in this story, which is the donkey himself. Right? So this is the best part. Everyone wants to know about the donkey. Uh, so, so verse 21 let's continue the story so Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab but God's anger was kindled because he went and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary now he was riding on the donkey and his two servants were with him and the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with drawn sword in his hand and the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. Okay, so who's the smartest person in this story so far? The donkey, right? Donkey knows what's going on. Um, and Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Stupid donkey, you're breaking my foot. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. 
When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. And then the best part of all, Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you made a fool of me. <laughs> right? No, I think you're doing a pretty good job all by yourself, Balaam. You're making a fool of me. Um, And the donkey said, uh, I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? Okay, not only is the, so here's the thing, not only is the, the donkey speaking and, you know, right, but he's out arguing Balaam, right? Uh, Balaam has to say, uh, well, no, actually, this is unique. Okay, so, so here's the thing. Um, here's a guy who makes his living doing what? Divining, you know, signs. Here's a guy who makes his living, who's got a world-renowned reputation for what? For reading omens. Okay, so the donkey says to him, look, do I normally act this way? No. Wouldn't this be like an omen? <laughs> right? Uh, uh, right, right, right. Well, so what can the donkey teach us? Well, uh, first off, God's anger was kindled um, uh, because, and, and God changes his mind. He doesn't change his mind, but he wants to make clear to Balaam that, uh, that he must only speak what God tells him, right? Don't be contemplating controlling God or playing some game with me or manipulating me to your own gain or advantage. So here we see a sign that Balaam uh, did not have totally pure motives, right? There was something perverse. God calls his way evil. There was something perverse and evil in Balaam's heart, and that's why God opposed him, not because he told him to go. In the end, uh, Balaam says, okay, I, you know, a- after all of this, <coughs> um, he, God, God speaks to him, and he says, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely I, I would have killed you and let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood on the road against me. Now, therefore, if it is evil in your sight for me to go, I will turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. That was the issue. He says, Yeah, go, but make sure you are careful to speak only, only what I tell you. Um, Second thing that this teaches us is that revelation is an amazing blessing. Okay, what this story largely about is about God's revelation. Uh, Balak is seeking revelation from God. Uh, he's wanting also to control and, and he's wanting to turn it, um, but he's seeking revelation. Balaam is smarter and knows that he can't control God, but he can know what God, what God is going to do. And so Balaam also is, is seeking revelation. And what we see here is God does reveal himself but what's incredible here is that God reveals himself most clearly to what? The donkey. Right? The donkey. 
Okay, and there's some important lessons here. Uh, the donkey saw the angel of the Lord. Why? Because donkeys are spiritually perceptive? No. Because God opened the donkey's eyes. Right? God gave the capacity to see to the donkey. And it's a rebuke, a slap in the face to Balaam. Balaam's like, yeah, you're the professional seer and you're blind. And the reason you're blind is because God is the only one who can reveal himself to you. And it's, it's one of God's greatest blessings, right? that God shows himself to us. He reveals himself. It's a huge gift. And God gives it first to the donkey, uh, opens his eyes. And then later he does open uh, Balaam's eyes. And, and God gives revelation to Balaam here with the donkey, but then later in the, in the oracles, in the testimonies that, that, that Balaam speaks, they come from God. Um, so, so how does God bless? How does God decide who he will give his blessing to? The blessing of revelation. Does God reveal himself to Balaam because Balaam is a good guy? Well, does God reveal himself to, to the donkey because the donkey is holy? No. It is because God chooses to. God sovereignly chooses to reveal himself to the donkey. And the donkey sees. God sovereignly chooses to reveal himself to Balaam. And it's not because Balaam is holy or because he's smart or because of his great reputation. It is simply because God chooses to open his eyes and to put his word in his mouth. That's the whole point. That's the point. Uh, and so it is with all of God's blessings. God's blessings come by His sovereign choosing. Right? His sovereign choosing. We see that in Balaam's first oracle. Uh, verse 7, Balaam took up his discourse, his oracle, and he said, From Aram, Balak has brought me, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come curse Jacob for me, and come denounce Israel. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? From the tops of the crags I see him, that is Israel. From the hills I behold him, that is uh, the vast crowd of Israel. Behold, a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. Cryptic, very poetic language here that uh, can kind of go by us. But what he's saying here is that Israel is unique among all the nations because they are what? Chosen by God. Chosen by God. Of course, God chose them to be a blessing and to bless them, but that through them he would bless all the nations. But God's blessing is a matter of his choice, of his choosing to bless those whom he will choose. And this is another place where Balak's theology is wrong. Balaam thought, Balak thought, Balaam had power to curse. He says, he who you curse will be cursed. He who you bless will be blessed. But Balaam says, when God says, no, uh, I will bless whom I bless. And in fact, he says that uh, I will bless those who bless Israel and I will curse those who curse Israel. We'll see that next week. So the point is this. Blessing is ultimately all of grace. The donkey did nothing to deserve it. The donkey didn't get up and have like super good quiet time that morning. Like I like I read I read the whole you know well but at that point there was only three books so it was easier right 
Genesis, Exodus, and half of Numbers, right? Uh, no, it wasn't because the donkey had done anything. He was just a dumb animal. God chose him, though, as an instrument to reveal his purpose and his plan. Why does God speak through Balaam? Because Balaam is holy? No. In fact, we will see that Balaam is anything but holy. It doesn't matter, right? Because God chooses to reveal himself in and through Balaam. Uh, so, so how can we apply these, this theology? We want it to be practical theology. So let me close with just four ways that I think we can apply some of these principles. First, uh, just to restate it again, revelation is from God, uh, not the messenger. Revelation is something God does as a blessing and a gift of grace uh, to those whom he chooses to reveal himself. Uh, it is not about the giftedness or holiness of the messenger. Uh, it is not about how, uh, how prayed up or how holy the messenger is. It is about the wonder of God who wants to reveal himself, and he can do it through any means. Uh, this last week at, at our staff uh, prayer meeting, one of our Thai staff had gone to see the movie um, Maleficent. And she said, and God spoke to me through that movie. And she shared how one of the redemptive pictures in that movie just spoke to her uh, that that's what Jesus did for her. Right? Does that mean Maleficent is a Maleficent? Maleficent? Whatever that is. Doesn't mean that's a, like a holy movie. No, right? But it means God can use any means to speak to us. And it's about, the, it's about the, his message and the one giving it, not the messenger. Uh, one commentator, Gordon Wenham, says this. Uh, the point is the parallel between Balaam and his donkey suggests that the ability to declare God's word is not necessarily a sign of Balaam's holiness, only that God can use anyone to be his spokesman. And this is really relevant for us today. We live in an era because of, because of TV and video, and especially now with social media, that all this stuff can be broadcast everywhere. We've made it really easy to create super rock star preachers of which I am not one, right? Um, and, and so that's a, that's a good thing, actually. But they're they're out there, right? There's these guys who are putting posts up and you know on social media where they're they're getting their sermons are getting listened to by millions, millions, right? I have a faithful following of ten. Yay, go me, right? Uh, what, what's happened is is we we've we've come to to see some of these guys as like bigger than life. And our error is this. We think that because they are messengers, they're automatically godly. And it's not true. Here's the truth. Preachers are all just a bunch of donkeys. I could use a different word, but since it's church, I won't. You can fill in the blank. It's true. Preachers are just a bunch of donkeys, right? And, and, and their ability to communicate should never be con- confused with their character. And, and, and Balaam's a great example that God can use pretty wicked, messed up people to communicate truth. Uh, but here's another point. Um, just because a preacher proves to not be as godly and superstar as we thought he was, doesn't discount his message. Right? We have to separate the person who's fallen sinful donkey from God who puts the word in his mouth. Right? 
If I ever say anything intelligent that speaks to you, it's not because of me. It's because God has put some word in my mouth and he's speaking to you. It's about God. That's true for every preacher, no matter how famous or how successful or how gifted they are as a communicator. What we need to do is we need to, and we we should uh, hold teachers and leaders to a high standard, but the way we evaluate them is not how effective they are at communicating. It's the character of their life. And so that's what the New Testament tells us. Right? Uh, Paul gives us these character qualities of elders. And it's, it's ways that they are an example in the way they live. Not like, are they super relevant, impactful communicators? They should be able to teach, but they don't have to do it super rock star style. Right? We should measure them on the basis, is their life an example worth following? Right? Do they have godly character? Okay, enough on that one. Um, just remember, though, preachers are donkeys. Okay, that's the bottom line on that one. Second one. Um, uh, this story helps us uh, have great confidence in the re- reliability of God's revealed word. This is amazing to me, that, that God speaks through a donkey. And when God speaks through a donkey, uh, you can count on it. Right? When God speaks through Balaam, he goes to great lengths to make sure that Balaam uh, repeatedly, and we'll see this as the story goes on next week, over and over, God, over and over again, Balaam says, I can only speak exactly what God told me. And so 500 years later, on this inscription on a wall in a non-Israelite temple, uh, it still is giving witness to God's word. And there's some amazing overlap between uh, Balaam's oracles and what's on that temple wall, right? Um, God's word is reliable. And if, if God could do that with Balaam, uh, we, we, we know that, that every word of Scripture is reliable, right? If God could go to great, such, such great lengths to make sure that Balaam spoke his word accurately, we know that he can do that for cer- certain with guys like Paul and, and Jesus and Peter and the prophets, right? So 2 Timothy says, All Scripture is God-breathed, is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. Right? His Word, is, is you can count on it. It is from God. Right? We, we know that. And the story confirms that. Um, final, uh, th- third thing, God can use you. Right? God, if God can use me, if God can use a donkey, God can use you. Right? God can use you. And it's, it's, it's His grace. He doesn't use you because you're so qualified or gifted, because you're God's gift to the world, right? Because you are so smart, because your theology is so good, then God could use you. No. God uses you because He fills you with His Spirit and He empowers you to do His work. Ephesians 2.9 says, not as a result of work... Um, I'm sorry, Ephesians 2.10. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Right? God has a, a calling on your life and he will use you. Last one. Um, it's by grace alone and by faith alone. Uh, here's the thing. Uh, Israel had proven to be terrible. right? And God had been right to judge them uh, over and over. Uh, God had been right to judge this current generation that was now 
forbidden, including Moses, from entering the promised land. Um, if, God's, if God's blessing is by grace, then why were they not recipients of his blessing? Well, they, the, the tempting answer is to say it's because they sinned. But that's, that's not true. right? They, they all sinned. But God had made sacrifices. He had made atonement. Right? In Jesus, there is atonement for our sin. But there still is a way to disqualify yourself. Right? So if it's not sin, then what is it that disqualified them? Well, it was this. They had lack of faith. Right? When God called them and when the, the 12 spies went into the land and they surveyed the land and they came back and Caleb gave a good report and the other 10 did not, uh, they, they did not enter because they did not believe. They did not have faith that God would fulfill his promise. Right? Uh, same is true for us. Uh, God's blessing comes by his grace. Nothing we do to deserve it or earn it. It is his grace. It is his promise to bless us. But we appropriate that through faith. Right? So what it means is that when we have our devotions in the morning, which we should, right? We should have our quiet time. We should meet God. We should go into his word. But not to manipulate God, not to somehow earn his blessing, but to meet God there in relationship and to remember what he has promised and claim those things by faith. That's what it should be about. We go there and we read, God says, um, ask and seek and knock and it will be given to you because I am a good father who knows how to give good gifts to my children. How many times a day do I need to be reminded of that? <laughs> like every day, right? I need to be reminded that God is a faithful God who wants to bless us and he's chosen to bless us out of his grace. But do I believe it? Am I claiming it by faith? Am I grabbing hold of his promises and trusting that he will do those things in my life? And you may say, well, I thought I was, but I got cursed instead. Well, even that is an act of faith. To know that when I feel like I'm being cursed and when I feel like God's picking on me, when I feel like God did not answer my prayer, it's not because he's not blessing me. It's not because I didn't measure up. Right? It could be because I'm not trusting him. And it could be because I'm wanting gifts that aren't good for me. And, and, and actually what he's doing in my life is a good thing. It might be painful at the moment. But faith says, no, God, God is blessing. And this hard thing in my life is his gift. It's a good thing. It is his blessing. And he will fulfill all of his promises in my life. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.